um, my struggle with it really is, is that like without like trying not to have a face makes it to where you call in and it doesn't matter who you get. Like you're, you're getting the same quality treatment, no matter who you reach, which I think is one of the biggest things in recovery coaching. But every time I get in front of family members and talk to them, like I did something on Thursday night, like we get four or five clients out of it, you know, Always, um, every time, Always. Every, every time. time, it's pretty every wild. time. Um, yeah. And so like, I don't know what it is. And if I'm like not playing into it, it's like, sometimes I feel like I could be a cult leader uh, just because like, mm. you know, and I don't want that. I have this same, it's so funny, man. I have the exact same fear. Uh, and I think it's a lot of it w- was brought up for me because uh, Beth Matnier, who shares office space with us, she yeah. focuses heavy on, you know, her specialty is trauma. And she's going a little bit deeper into that specialty with like uh, cult survivors. Yes. And, really being one of the pioneers of creating a curriculum for cult survivors. And I'm like hyper aware because of the conversations that we've had around how culty the treatment industry is, you know? Right. And I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. Am I that guy? Like, I'm always looking at myself through that lens. Like, am I that guy? How can I not be that guy? Yeah, I know. And it's like, it's one of those things that it's a privilege to have people hang on to your words and language and like outcomes that you're expecting to to even care at all, to even care at all. It's a huge privilege. And it like always comes back to that Spider-Man trope for me, like to like with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think that cult leaders use that power for like, irresponsible means um Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. that like innovators and change makers like use it for the positive right so if you can create if you can couple it with ethics right right um and accountability so it's not like you can have a leader that's got like zero checks and balances in place you know um yeah that's that's a fact that's a fact it's a fact you have to have an organizational structure around it to avoid that uh business being synonymous with the person which is so much of what we see here in the southeast is like you know there's a ton of personalities that are really strong and then the unfortunate thing is is you know like you said people are fallible and people make mistakes and uh you know all of the naysayers are looking for that one thing to hang on to to just break down tear down everything that that person did right when it's when it you know really if you look at it it's it's bigger than that right it's uh everything in the south and like especially in charleston it's got like the business's name has like the owner's name in it you know it's like Mm -hmm. waters construction or like uh you know Mm -hmm. isaac's law firm is like what it would be but like uh so they are are implying that like i it's all me. Like I'm doing all of this and yeah, for sure. Can't like in the long run, like sustain anything like that. Um, because people won't, yeah, people won't be bought in. Um, and then how many of those like attorneys or, or real estate firms or real estate agents that like screw up one deal and like, because it's their name attached to it, like they're just, they're screwed all the time, man, all All the the time. time. And then when you see it in our industry, the implications that come with it, Right. Because of the way that ego interacts with the disease, um, it's especially dangerous. And then, you know, there are lives attached to it. Right? Right. There are lives attached to the other side. There are people that are truly, truly 
relying on us, which is, I think, what scares me the most is like that is a ton of responsibility, more so a lot of times than than other industries. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, we're dealing with like delicate people, broken families, and a society that wants to put everybody in a box of like, oh, mm-hmm. just go over there and go away. Um, mm-hmm. And also employees that, you know, oftentimes this is their first experience within this industry and you know it we have the ability to shape for the positive or for the negative their outlook on the industry Mm because you know a lot of times depending on the position you're in this may be the only version you ever see and if it's a bad one you will have this picture of what it's going to be like and what it is cemented in your brain right And that's the stigma of it too, you know, like not stigma of just the disease, but like stigma of the treatment aspect of it too. Um, It's, it's such a double-edged sword and and I'm starting to see it more and more. So I've been doing uh, a new orientation schedule for our new hires and literally just started this week. Okay. And, you know, we brought in a third party HR consultant and we're really, really focusing hard on improving culture. We're at like that genesis within the company growth where we're, we're going from like adolescence to like a semi-maturity, right? And I see it as a huge opportunity. So we brought in this third-party HR consultant. And a lot of what we've been talking about is the onboarding and the orientation process to start. So I built out schedules for everybody and we've been taking them through and getting them exposed to every aspect of the business, not just the one that they're going to be involved in day to day, but they sit with, you know, if it's a clinician, they sit with admissions, they sit with the recovery coaches, they get to see, they get to sit with Eric and watch him, uh, what he does on the back end with the finance uh, and then I've been doing some trainings, just personal one-on-one trainings with them. And one of the ones that I've been doing is your language of recovery deck, man, and just talking them through that. And there's been, you know, with every uh, public speaking thing that you do, right, it evolves the more mm-hmm. times you do it. And there's been um, a lot of me looking at it from the perspective of the business and us as an organization and looking at the, the wider lens view of the industry as a whole. And a lot of um, what I see as like inherent problems that exist with uh, burnout. Right. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, these like small imperceptible things that we're not cognizant of, like the way we have, conversations about clients when they're not present and we justify it as like oh i'm just venting i need to get right. this off my chest but ever since you gave me the training the first time I, I took it to heart really tried to put it into practice and what i found is i haven't burnt out since yeah. like it's incredible man it it's really a, is 
different experience because instead of digging holes, I'm planting seeds when I Mm. use that language. And so Mm -hmm. like what happens with like, you know, an entire system that instead of like people just like venting all the time about people Mm -hmm. that we're like actually trying to support them. Um, Mm -hmm. Like even in our off hours. uh, Well, even in your head too, right? Like the way I talk about things, it's almost like learning a language. Like you become fluid in the language when you start thinking in it, right? Right. It's, it's the same thing with this. When I start thinking uh, like, you know, now, no matter where I am, unless I'm in a fellowship meeting, everybody's a person with a substance use disorder, right? Right. It's no longer an addict, an alcoholic, a junkie. And what's so crazy about that is just by using that language, you're connecting with them more in your own head, because I'm not like using the same language that I've used for everyone. Like I'm calling them a person. And so that Mm -hmm. gives me a chance to connect with them. Like, uh, it's, you know, the language that we use is, is such an important piece. And the thing that I do with it now um, like this far into it, I, I think that I've given that presentation, like probably 50 times at this point. And like, what I always say is why? Like, why are we doing this? Um, you know, PC culture being what it is like woke culture. Like, I know that that's a hot topic, but the why is connection. Like at the end of the day, um, with that, you know, recovery does not happen in a vacuum. It requires connection. And so this is one of the easiest ways for you to maintain long-term connection with an entire population rather than just a single person. Yeah. And it's incredible the effect that it has. It really is, you know, and, and just the effect that it has on them in the moment in that training and then watching them start to implement it and watching them catch themselves. And, you know, I, I always try to like caveat, like, Hey, listen, you're going to mess up. Right. right? This I, I mess up still all the time, yeah. you know, and I, I just kind of have a little self-correction in my head or when it's appropriate, I self-correct out loud Right. And it gets, it gets a little bit easier and a little bit easier. And just the, the overwhelming, like compassion that I feel now, my cup is never empty. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that that one little thing has just totally changed it. Cause when I, listen, when I started in this field, I was immersed in it 24 seven right. and I didn't have a whole lot of formal training. I opened a sober living and just kind of figured things out as I went and made every mistake you can make. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I promise you I've made, I'm sure there's still more to make, but I've made a lot of mistakes. And within that first eight months, I had really burnt myself out. Right. And I started to look at, you know, uh, I started to separate myself. Right. And I started to look at people with substance use disorders as their disease right rather than what it is there's a sick person right there's somebody with an illness and you know having that having that perspective of them being their disease it's impossible to do effective work it really is It is. And when that's the thing that's glaring at us is, you know, something like that. Um, it's, it's hard to want to break through it, uh, because like, I've got all of these negative views and connotations that I am putting onto a person. And like, therefore, if I view them negatively, like I'm not going to help them work hard for themselves. Um, I think that I say this all the time to like family, friends, like I'm an eternal optimist. Like I'm always going to find the silver lining in something. 
And that carries me through so much more than anything else. It's like, there's always going to be a good scenario here. There's always going to be either a learning experience or a positive outcome. Like either way, those both, like both of those things are good. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I, like when I started to view life that way and situations and scenarios, I was then able to like view people that way. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I mean, that's what my personal recovery kind of boils down to as well like you know when the when the different fellowships talk about like you know being rocketed into a fourth dimension of living right and that complete psychic change Mm -hmm. to me it's like a very very small shift in perspective right and I say this all the time to clients I say it all the time to families like it's just like I went from looking at this as the worst thing that ever happened to me to the best thing that ever happened to me and I had to to fake it for a little bit i had to do a little bit of uh, cbt on myself and then all of a sudden the more and more i did it the more and more it became true right i just think about geometry like when it comes to making a decision like that and if i just tilt my idea just a little bit and like continue on straight for years and years mm-hmm. and years like how far do i deviate from that negative thinking um I love and that. it's that's the practice for me it's like all right i'm not gonna jump miles ahead in a day Like I'm not, um, but when I start to do something and I like stay on that path, eventually a year, three years, five years, like my thinking will be very different. That's slow and steady, man. Slow and steady. It's so hard to, it's so hard to do, especially if as somebody, you know, with a predisposition to substance use disorders and different, uh, behavioral disorders, um, right. It's tough. (laughs) It is. It is. Um, You talk about like mental health, you know, even mental disabilities, like motivating someone with a mental disability to stop hyper fixating on one outcome. Um, It's impossible. Um, Yeah, it's impossible. So I think that not not impossible. I'll challenge you on that. Yeah, yeah. Nothing's impossible. It's really fucking hard, but it's not impossible. Right. Um, Yeah, we uh, we do it all the time. You do it all the time. Right, right. Right. It's, uh, it is, it's, it's, it's a hurdle to overcome. Um, I was thinking about that, like shift in perception, honestly, like that little shifts as it, I'm going to tie it back to the 75 hard thing, because mm. it was like just getting started in a practice like that. Like if I can just stay trying, um, like what's going to happen in a year. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. like that, uh, to me is, is one of the bigger kind of pieces about that was that it's not just 75 days that you're working for here. Like it's, it's, it's the outcome of the long term. It's a, it's a shift in the way you talk to yourself is what I've found. So I guess we should probably just start talking as if people are listening to us. Yeah. So, you know, when, uh, for, for all the people out there, that are listening, maybe one or two of our employees <laughs> right now. Um, uh, we're both doing this 75 hard challenge, which is, was created by Anthony Frisella is his name. And there's a book, uh, highly recommend that anybody wants to try it, read the book, uh, which Isaac, where are you at with the book? I have not friend? read the book. I haven't ordered the book. <laughs> I read uh, seven yeah. bullet points of what I was supposed to do for the 75 hard. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I love it. I yeah. love it. I, uh, I have been ruthlessly, ruthlessly trying to get Isaac to read this book for two weeks now. Yeah. And 
we're gonna get you know what i'm gonna order it right now like while we're on the line i'm gonna order it right now order it man it is like it changed well i read it the first day right i read it the day before i started and Mm -hmm. the motivation that it gave me was just incredible like the mindset setting the intention of it it really it really did it for me it really really did yeah um so the book is now out of print what you gotta be kidding me no (laughs) i'm not kidding where are you looking amazon did you buy the app yet yeah can you there should be a button on there to order it through the app okay like from him directly okay that would be it's making me confirm start over oh geez all right i'll order it i'll figure it out yeah 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 but that's uh that's been kind of the game changer for me is hearing about it in his words and hearing about the deeper intention behind the program and how it, you know, really the physical aspect is a byproduct of the uh, mental growth that is supposed to come from it. Right. You know, you know, I've been like, I've been obsessed with entrepreneurship for eight years now. And I've like read all of the classics when it comes to that, you know, the innovators guide, like startup owners manual, like uh, lean startup. I, even when I was in college, I read like the hundred dollar startup. And like, every time I read one of those books, it was like motivated a new form of thinking for me. Um, and I think about like listening to your conversation about like reading this book from this guy. And it's like, you go back into and like jump into I think, you know, jump into someone else's way of thinking and like expose yourself to these new ideas and like see how it relates and adapts to your own life um, and what you can do with the new information I think about. Like, that's my biggest thing. Yeah, it's pretty cool, man. It's like mm-hmm. uh, the way my experience with reading. So, you know, growing up, I uh, never really read, man. I, I started off young, loving reading. And then school got involved and kind of, um, I think it might've been my oppositional defiance disorder. Uh, it had nothing to do with school, but like being forced to do it. Uh, I hated homework and I just was, uh, the kind of kid who just didn't do it. Right. right. Ever. I don't think I ever did homework all throughout. What is it? 13 years. Yeah. School. kindergarten kindergarten from, all the way to dude, 12th grade from, from <laughs> kindergarten all the way to senior year i didn't do a shred of homework i crammed on papers last minute yeah i never read the book i didn't even read the cliff notes man i would just yeah. ask somebody about it before and then fake my way through it yeah right that was me and uh you know now that i am uh reading for myself and looking to like have like a true desire to acquire the knowledge because mm-hmm. of what it affords me afterwards. Um, I, lo- I look at it like uh, it's like unlocking levels in a game, you know, like every time I read a book, man, I get to that next level and it's pretty, it's so cool. It's so I, rewarding. It's so funny. I had a pretty similar experience with reading when I was young. Like the first books that really captivated me were mystery books. And then mm-hmm. like the Harry Potter, like, 
Same, kind of man. just I'm a huge yeah it just swept over me i'm <laughs> yeah. like four books in and then the movies came out and i was like mm-hmm. you guys this is way better <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is way better you guys yeah. like i get the yeah. info in an hour and a half i get to yeah. see it and this i stopped reading great. i like stopped yeah. reading after those movies came out which is like such yeah. a funny conundrum to like experience it is um but i uh you know i got kicked out of high school my senior year and like shipped off to that boot camp and yeah. uh I had to finish school while I was in there. And so I got like, I guess, three hours a day to go take online classes in this computer lab at this boot camp. And all I needed to graduate was one class. So like I needed yeah. one English credit, which like theoretically should have taken me like four weeks in this online school. Like I think it was 13 modules. I did a module a day, right. you know, um, right. three weeks, I guess. But right. I had to write a paper about a book. And so they had a very limited library in there. And I went in and yeah. grabbed the biggest book in there. Um, yeah. <laughs> because I knew that if I finished too early that I'd be out like working and hauling logs and like right. chopping wood instead of like in the AC, like in front of a computer screen, you know, <laughs> and that book was, um, was East of Eden. And it was like oh, yeah. a story of like three generations and like, uh, really long, but I got so lost and immersed in it that, uh, when I got out, I started reading like every form of like kind of self-help stuff that I could find, like every form awesome. of it, like depending on where I was in life, like, awesome. um, yeah, kind of crazy how, that, how crazy, it kind of comes back and, and gets you a little bit. It's wild. It really is. I mean, like that was kind of my first form of escapism, right? Mm-hmm. It was uh, books, movies, and TV. It's the same yeah. thing. It was always fiction. Uh, fiction fantasy like that's my favorite harry potter uh loved it uh saw every movie read every book Mm -hmm. like it really really was the first way for me to like escape the feelings that i was running from um you know before drugs before alcohol uh and then i kind of had a similar similar experience to you i wasn't in a boot camp, but I was in jail uh, my junior year of high school, and I had uh, I was on probation, and it wasn't even really probation because I was a, a, a minor. It was called a watch, and all I had to do <laughs> was stay sober for six months. So my dad, my dad arrested me. So my dad's a police officer in the mm. town that I'm from, and you know I I had really started diving deeper into drugs and you know they had uh they were trying to you know control me right and i so anyway they found my dad found drugs hold a second hold a second your phone is ringing and it's super loud is it really yeah so i'm just gonna have you repeat that i can barely even hear it okay Um, super loud so i i had been getting deeper and deeper into drugs and you know my parents at the time knew nothing about substance use disorders right and there wasn't a lot of information out there at the time this was you know what like about 12 years ago so i was 12 13 years ago so i was uh you know 14 15 16 and my dad found drugs in my little brother's room that i was hiding and at the time he was like you know 12 13 and i'd hid my drugs in his room and my dad came in like a good older brother 
yeah like a good older brother (laughs) and uh my dad found them he was like looking for a shirt in my little brother's closet and he smelled the weed because i just had it in this like little zip up lunchbox i thought nobody could smell it whatever uh so he found it he had actually received advice from a therapist that his police union hooked him up with and she said you know you got to have him arrested right you guys could lose your kids you got to have them arrested yep so that's what he did (laughs) yeah 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 that's how that's how long ago this was because like right that that this was in connecticut which is a pretty progressive state uh you know it was a somebody working with a union there's a whole dialogue we could go down in there i know man i know and uh so anyway long story short had me arrested the next day. I refused to talk to them. I ended up in a psych ward for three days. Um, and then at that point, full-blown resentment. Uh, yeah. I was going to drink and use and uh, everything was going to be at my dad and mom. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. And then the judge, I would go and I would test positive for court. And then the judge would send me to... Uh, it's a place called MYI in Cheshire, Connecticut. So Manson Youth, Manson Youth Institute. And it was like a level four facility, but it was age specific. So it was the right place for me in my age group, but it was 23 hour a day lockdown. So I had Ugh. 23 hours a day in a cell, one hour a day uh, for like rec, right? And, you know, I was... Um, anyway, long story short, that was its own little traumatic deal. Right. But that's where I started reading again. Right. And started using that as a form of escapism. And I got hooked again. Right. Even in my active use, I got hooked again into like reading for myself, um, which then played a big role in my eventual recovery. So, right. It's so funny. Like we can talk about this, like escapism for, uh, I mean, hours and hours and hours. Um, but like <clears throat> I had this psychiatrist when I was in treatment the last time that read this, that led this group that pretty much he took your biopsychosocial assessment and like, you know, any of your kind of personality disorders that you might've been like borderline or teetering on or diagnosed with from your assessments, mm-hmm. he taught you how to use them for your benefit in recovery. So I think about that all the time, like all the time, if I've got these things that weigh me down or I've like been put in positions that like are really difficult, like how do I use them for my benefit? Like, what is the thing that I can do that if I'm ADD, like if I am, you know, oppositionally defiant, if I, you know, what they told me was I had some antisocial tendencies and it was like, how do I use these things that instead of weighing me down, how do I turn them into like, you know, benefits and, I think it's so funny, like Kanye West, like as crazy as he is, like came out and said all those things, like I'm bipolar and it's my superpower. And like for a man like that, like it, he really has, I'm not saying he's tamed it perfectly, but he's really learned how to use it for his benefit. Um, I mean, the dude's wildly successful and like one of the most creative people on this planet right now. And a genius. Genius. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like, how do I like even begin to like scrape the surface of that, you know? Um, and how do I use my like negative traits to benefit myself? And, uh, you know, it was always like, 
this thing in my mind that if I was going to have these traits, like I'm stuck with them, they can be genetic. We can call it whatever we want, like nature versus Mm -hmm. nurture. Like I've got this stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. at this point, I don't need to like today, I don't need to figure out where it came from, but like, I do need to like figure out how to use it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Would you say that that is, uh, like how, how would you rank that, um, as far as a contributing factor toward you getting sober? at such a young age? Uh, I will say that that those directions that I received were what made me find success so quickly um, in recovery. And so like, I couldn't have, um, I don't know how to like put this, but getting like into recovery young and, and doing all of that, like there's, it's a different set of problems. Like, you know, a lot of people who are entering recovery, like lost a spouse or they lost the job or they lost the house. Um, and like, I never had any of those things. So like, here I am like starting even below that because I have to build those things too. Uh, and I think that like the direction that I received from that, I wouldn't have known this at the time that that psychiatrist was going to change the entire outcome of my life. But like, uh, I really took his messages to like work harder. Um, it really made me want to be a poster poster child of like what recovery can do in someone's life because I was a poster child for the opposite before. Um, and so like, what, uh, what do I have to do to like kind of flip the page of the story and like begin to write a new narrative? And it worked. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like super lucky. Like I I say that all the time. Like it's, uh, I was like put in positions to like be successful in recovery, which, um, is like what I want to do for other people now. Like that's the whole reason that I do it for sure. Sure. I mean, me too, man. I, yeah. You know, you were 19, right? 19. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And, you know, people hear that and they're like, can't believe it. it that a lot for a lot of people, that seems insane. Mm-hmm. Right. And it did to me too. Right. Like I didn't, I didn't go into the process wanting to be sober for the next like nine years almost so my Mm -hmm. date's in july so uh coming up on nine years here yeah hell yeah and i never ever ever had that as part of the plan right ever right right my plan was to make it to a year like that was my plan like just do a year and we'll figure some other things out like this we're not gonna have to do this for forever you you were more ambitious than me man my my goal was 30 days and i was gonna go back to the job that I had lost, right? Mm-hmm. I was going to uh, start just drinking and just smoking weed. And that was going to be it, man. Like that was my plan. Right. And then, you know, through some tough moments, uh, which I call growth moments now, like that was where uh, the closest thing to a spiritual experience that I ever had was just these really, really uh, difficult moments where I tried to run and I tried to panic and people didn't let me and they let me feel the things I was feeling. And then I experienced them passing. That was a spiritual experience for me, you know? Yeah. I had all of that too. Like, where do you think like your experience in having those like growth moments, as you said, how do you prepare yourself for those? Like, because they still are going to come up, you know? Yeah. I mean, at the time I wasn't prepared. 
and not being prepared was what allowed me to grow with the right guidance, right? I had the right people around me. I think a lot of it's the same now, right? It's about, you know, show me, show me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are, right? So it's like putting the right people around me so that when I'm not prepared, I can rely on that network of people. And yeah, I think that that message is uh, like transmutational across so many different like aspects of life, like the right people around you. I think about that in business. I think about that in my personal life. I think about that in my intimate relationships. I think about that in my family. And it's like, am I, uh, what am I doing to cultivate that? Because if I don't cultivate those around me, um, those around me aren't going to cultivate me. And like, I'm going to be stuck. Um, And I am terrified of being stuck today, like Mm. terrified because I lived that way for so long, you know? Right. Um, And like, what is it? Uh, Don't want to waste any more time. No, I'm going to bring it back to like what I said in the beginning, like um, with great power comes great responsibility or like, you know, what my mentor always says uh, to whom much is given, much is expected, Mm -hmm. you know, like, Mm -hmm. and and that's what I think about, like almost on a daily basis, like to whom much is given, much is expected. So like, how do you deal with those expectations now? Right. Cause like you are in charge of a lot of people and a lot of people's financial security and a lot of people's mental well-being, whether it Mm -hmm. be clients or staff, like how do you deal with those expectations? Um, I, that's a great question. I think that like, in reality, um, I know that I have a responsibility to show up. Um, I have yeah. a responsibility to use my expertise, my passions, uh, and my education in a way that can benefit other people. Um, yeah. Yeah. and so at the end of it, like it depends on who I'm working with because it's very different working with a business partner or a employee or one of the people that we serve, like it's very different in how I handle those conversations. And the first thing that I always do when someone is going through something is I read the room. Like uh, I don't think that without reading the room and like picking up on what's going on, like whether it's um, unconscious like thoughts and behaviors that they're exhibiting or like even extremely vocal things that they're talking about, that with that awareness of what's happening, we can then begin to kind of whittle away, like how am I going to be impactful here? Um, Because not every situation has a successful outcome in the moment. Uh, And so I think that the biggest thing is, is that as long as I am cultivating somebody, like we are going to get through this. So, I mean, that sounds like detaching from the result or the immediate result to me, like, I think accurate. Yeah. I think the immediate result is the thing that you nailed the most, because I think more in long-term success than short-term like gains. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, I think about that in life. I think about that in my business. I think about that in other people that I'm working with. Like I am here for the long game. I am not here necessarily to make you feel better in this exact Mm -hmm. moment. Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. I agree. Uh, so when it comes to like that internal piece, right? Cause it's scary being in charge of so much and being responsible for so much, right? Terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. It's terrifying. terrifying. So like, what do you do 
personally to help protect yourself against that fear? Um, I mean, like we can call a spade a spade. Like I have a ton of faith. Like I have a ton mm-hmm. of faith. Um, yeah. And so like, what is that faith? What does that faith look like? Bro? I have a belief in my life that there is something out there. I could not label it um, that has put me on a path and that like, I am right where I'm supposed to be at any given moment. Um, mm-hmm. We can call it destiny. We can call it fate. Uh, we can call it whatever it is. And that I have also have a belief that like, wherever I am, I have the opportunity to benefit somebody else. Um, And so that is like where it comes back to for me, because, you know, we were having this conversation earlier before we started recording about like, you know, you're the one who called me like that mentality of, Mm -hmm. you know, people do reach out to us and ask us for help. And, and with that, there's a ton of responsibility. Like, what if I'm not giving the best advice? Like all of these thoughts can like run in and around, or what if it's not my program or what if it's, you know, uh, they've got so much trauma from a past experience that I'm not going to be able to break through. Like there are all these scenarios that come into play, but at the end of it, like the only thing that I can seize is the opportunity to benefit someone else. And that's what I'm here to do. Mm Yeah. Um, so it's like yeah. those personal marching orders. Like, I don't, I don't know if you have your own mantras or anything like that, but it's just like, I am here. I am here to do work. I am here to do work. I am here to do work. Yeah. I mean, mine is just, I'm, I'm exactly where I need to be. Right. And right. I'm exactly where I need to be. And if I step back and I can quiet my own brain for a little bit and listen to my gut and listen to what the universe is telling me. Like you said, you don't just charge in like a raging bull anymore, which is what I did for a lot of my life, (laughs) a lot of my life. And even the early stages of my business, I charged in like a raging bull. My self will was going to get shit done. And that was it. And it never, ever worked. What's so funny about that, like you mentioned, like charging in, especially with your business is I took the opposite approach. Like Mm -hmm. I wanted to handle everything so delicately and navigate scenarios in like such a soft way that that held me back. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, there's a balance, man. There is a huge balance. There's a huge balance. And I think that that's like life in general. Um, what were the like learning experiences for you? Like in, in trying to get over that, like, all right, my way isn't working here. Like I'm trying to be this bull in a China shop when it comes to my business. Like, what do I have to do now? Did you reach out to other people? Was it like, what happened there? Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of, uh, so most of my experiences around, uh, that, charging in like a raging bull it started with clients in the sober living when i was really doing a lot of that stuff right myself and doing the direct care and you know like making the mistakes with those clients and that was a really long process okay that was a long process of like self-reflection of like this isn't working and i most of the time i didn't recognize it immediately it would be later on when I would uh, expose myself to uh, different ways of thinking and different people in the industry and how they were doing it, that I would reflect back and say, oh my God, I fucked that up so bad. <laughs> I, could, I could do better and I'm going to do better moving forward. Um, and then the other big piece, man, is like, you know, I have business partners and uh, partnership is the closest thing to a marriage that I have ever experienced and may forever. I don't know, but like it is, um, you are 
tied to this person uh, legally, financially, emotionally, spiritually, like every part of your life is entangled with uh, this other person's part of life or these other people's lives. Right. And, uh, you know, that was, that was the biggest learning experience for me was, um, figuring out how to work with different styles of doing things and, um, learning to be open to being wrong. Mm. Right. Which was tough, man. That was really tough. Yeah. And I think it's like such a piece of, you know, we can call a spade a spade. Like we're both young guys that have been like on the front end of, of a lot of this stuff for several years at this point. And so most mm. people aren't innovating in their mid twenties. Like they mm. are waiting until they're in their mid thirties to like start companies like what we do. Yeah. And so yeah. like having some of that young ego in association with business is hard because, you know, you're exactly right. in talking about partnerships that way, like it is such an intimate relationship. Um, you know, one of my mentors in, in life said, I like big ships. I like little ships, but I don't like partnerships. Um, <laughs> and I cannot imagine doing this any other way, like Maybe any other did. way. Um, yeah. I cannot imagine being a sole proprietor and doing all of the things that this business needs on my own. Like I, I need people. That's what I've like come to the conclusion yes. of. Like I need people yes. every day. I agree. Um, I so. agree. You know, the, the thing that I admire about your partnership with Andrew is that you guys shore up each other's weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, that was something that was tough for me in the early stages was like recognizing where I was weak and admitting those things to myself and looking for the strengths in my partners, you know, and it was just an overall, again, going back to perspective shifts, like, uh, so I read uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, and uh, I started to only look for the strengths in my partners and stop looking for their weaknesses, because yeah. I did that for a long time. I would like notice something that I didn't like, and I would fixate on it and fixate on it and fixate on it. So I had to pull myself out of that and really start looking at only the stuff that they do really well and like recognizing it, saying it to myself and then saying it to them and saying it to other people when they weren't around. Mm -hmm. Right. And that being the only thing that I focused on. And I think it, that's like such a unique piece about leadership at the end of the day too, is that like, even in partnerships that like each people, like each side of the partnership has to lead the others. Um, yeah. Like I need help from Andrew, Andrew needs help from me. And Sorry. we, that's why we do what we do. And that's like how we open up the communication. Um, what made that perspective shift for you in the partnerships of like, I am going to support them in doing these things instead of trying to do it all myself. You know, again, I think it was just a, a swimming against the tide or against the current rather just became so exhausting that I was at a place where I was like, you know, either going to quit and just give up or I was going to do something different. Right. And it was like almost just being like, 
forced into like I fought it as long as I could and then the current kind of swept me up and I started to look at my business the same way I look at my uh, recovery and my personal growth which is through a spiritual lens of you know like again you know we get a lot of people get weird talking about spirituality and talking about God and talking about religion and you know it's a it's a, a hot button issue right always it always has been throughout history and it always will be you know yeah. and um for me man it sounds crazy but uh the day i went into detox man i had this like overwhelming sense of god being present right and i grew up catholic so at the time it was like mm. that was my perception of god was right. you know jesus right so i had this like i had this image in my head of like god having his hand on my back and like i could feel it and like i i've never openly admitted that to anyone ever because it sounds very uh braggadocious right like that's what it feels to me right and i always wanted to avoid that and, you know, it has nothing to do. I know now that it has nothing to do with me being special, right? It really doesn't. It was, um, you know, my God, my perception of God has changed drastically since then. Um, right. You know, I'm no longer, I no longer kind of put it in a box with religion. It's something totally different. It's like an energy and a flow of the universe of like good, right? Like good piling on top of good uh, but since that day man like even though uh, my brain still wanted to eventually go out and drink and use like a normal person you know when I listen to my gut and my heart and where my god consciousness lives you know I was able to make the right decision um, so when I started to apply that to my business I found the same thing, man, just like good piling on top of good and listening to that uh, gut feeling and God consciousness and quieting this down, you know? Uh, yeah. That's one of my biggest struggles is like inviting God into business, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like I think about inviting like higher power, whatever you want to call it, like essentially just like help from the universe into my difficult conversations. I think about it when I'm like getting up to publicly speak, I like say a mini little prayer that's let the words be mine and the message be thine, like just help me, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I think about that stuff all the time. And it's really hard when I'm like doing financial projections and analysis of like income and, and things like that to say like, oh God, come in here and help me with this. Um, it's really difficult. And so I have you experienced it working though? Every time I try it, right. <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. Uh, the proof's in the pudding that every time I do um, that, like outcomes change. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, we started our business two years ago. We didn't really like jump all the way in until July of last year. So we're, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's, we had been doing it for a year and a half. We were both working other jobs, like any, you know, small business or entrepreneur, right. like trying to get this off the ground. And, um, when we really jumped in, in July, like, uh, October came around, October came and I was like, did I make a mistake? Like, 
was my thought. Like, did I like jump too far in too early? And uh, I had a- What made you think that? You know, the client, like people weren't calling in, you know, like not enough, like people were calling in for me to say like, this is like gonna work. Like it's gonna happen. You know, I was getting- Scary. It's super scary. And so like, I was getting phone calls um, that were just like, I was getting a ton of unqualified calls in. And I think that's like, it was a difficult place for me to be. Cause I'm like, you know, people are interested in this. Like, am I priced wrong? Like all the, you know, all of this like gamut that I went through and struggled with. And, um, you know, at the end of the day to like, be like super transparent about it. Like I, like I had to pray so hard about like, am I on the right path? Am I on the right path? Am I like right where I'm supposed to be? And like, as soon as I like turned over the results, like we were talking about earlier, like we got super busy like super busy. Um, and with that, like, uh, it's, it's, it always happens that way. Um, Mm. you know, we're talking about like doing a pretty aggressive expansion right now. And I'm the fear comes back. Like it, it does like, am I, am I making the right choices? Am I hiring the right people? Am I like, you know, that negative self-talk and every time I like start to have those thoughts and just like, you know, like turn it over just a little bit like it all works itself out every time man. every time every time it's amazing never never ceases to amaze right but i always question it every time you know it's hard to it's hard to um completely overcome that doubt right i don't think that that's something that will ever happen right it's that progress rather than perfection piece experienced the same thing we first opened our sober living we were all in man like we dove head first from the jump and you know i think it's by virtue of having less to lose right like i don't i didn't go to school right i i ended up working my way up through uh the construction industry literally from like uh, day laborer all the way to I was a project manager for a company down here in Charleston and uh, <clears throat> that was really my first ever office job and my first ever uh, foray into the corporate world and my experience was horrible <laughs> to be honest with you like it was just a, a poorly managed company in a lot of ways and I think my perspective had a lot to do with my poor experience like I was always looking for problems and never looking for solutions and I was constantly like it's really easy as an employee to blame the business owner or to blame the boss right and it's really hard to look at their perspective of like man, it's tough to manage people. It's really fucking hard to start a business and keep it running, right? Yeah, you don't know that until you do it. You don't, you don't. And then when you, you know, and not everybody's going to do it. It's not for everybody. But um, seeing it from the other side now, I have so much more empathy and compassion for all my previous bosses that I would talk shit about because like they were really doing the best that they could at the time 
right you know right. a lot of it was like coping mechanisms right I, I i in my mind i compare it to like family systems issues now like where the intention is always pure and good right at the base of it and then the coping mechanisms for survival start to pile up and create this mountain of dysfunction and that's how a lot of businesses kind of wind up right right i think it's you know that just sparked a, a pretty big thought in my mind when you were talking about like businesses that just begin to pile up with systems issues and you know what's the first thing that they trained us to do when we were talking about doing family interventions was to develop a recovery message with a family mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. everybody sit down and write what's happening here and what happens when you bring that concept into a business of like hey you guys like we, this is our message. Like we're going to work on this together. We're going to come up with it and it's going to be our marching order for whenever times are tough, whenever times are good. Like this is the vision of what we're doing here. Yes. Um, so important. So important to get like the people that work with us um, involved in that vision, because like, if they're not bought in, if they are not like uh, if they're not telling themselves like the vision every day, like, they're, they're not going to meet our expectations as, as bosses and managers, and it's going to lead to conflict. That's right. And they're yeah. not going to be fulfilled, right? If mm -hmm. you do not have that higher purpose, and especially, you know, I find with uh, the younger generations, like it's not about money all the time, right? I think with, uh, at least my perception of some of the older generations and the way the business world used to work is like, that was priority number one. It's like, how much money was I going to make? What were the benefits period? Right. It was like money benefits and then everything else kind of fell somewhere down here. And now it's, you know, like mission vision, time off and flexibility and then money. Right. right. Benef benefits and money are like on the same level for a lot of people in, in younger generations that we hire. And I think what I did poorly initially and I'm and I'm striving to do better at now is uh, conveying that message, conveying mm -hmm. that vision and getting them involved with like uh, its constant evolution, because that's what it's it's constantly evolving and it, and it has to right? It has right. to, if it's it not growing, to. it's dying. And I think that that's the big difference between a mission and a vision, you know, mm -hmm. um, missions change, the vision stays the same. Yes. And so like I yes. did this workshop, uh, seven years ago, um, when we started the collegiate recovery program and we had this business consultant come in and, had us write down like 60 words that we wanted to define the collegiate recovery program. Like mm -hmm. they could mean the same thing, but we had to write down these 60 words. And then after that, we had to put the words in order of importance. Like how important is it? And at the end of the day, we came up with this like six word mission or vision statement for the collegiate recovery program. And it encompassed all of those like hundred like phrases that we had tried. And at the end of it, it just said helping recovering students succeed. And it was so simple. And like, that's mm -hmm. the vision. And then like, how do you do that? Like, how mm -hmm. do you help them succeed? And that's how we got into our mission statements at each and every time. And like, yeah. that's a pared down version of like coming up with that. But 
the thing was is that we had students coming up with that like it wasn't mm-hmm. like uh the owner came and said like this is what it is like you know we mm-hmm. we did it all together which i think is a huge thing to get people bought in yeah yeah i mean it's unique it's unique i think in that space it'd be really hard for me to go to my staff without some sort of a vision laid out first no you're a mature mature company at at this point like we were in the startup phase right 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 okay okay yeah that makes sense that makes sense yeah um when it comes to like defining a mission at each interval with the staff like how do you how do you do that currently uh so currently like you know, we operate kind of on islands, which is, is unique for us because we're do, we do one-on-one work. Um, so at the end of the day, like a coach is with their, the individual that we're serving one-on-one and I'm not necessarily there for it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm there in spirit every time, but like, I'm not, I'm not there. And so what I do is weekly when I check in on them, like, what is your goal for the individual right now? And so like thinking, getting them to think about like, where do I want to go with them? Because if I just like sent them out and like gave them their schedule, like they would be less motivated than like, oh yeah, I really want to see this out of them. Um, Yeah. And so I I think about it like hyper-focused goals. And then I think about reminding everyone of this is why we're here. We're here to have positive impact on individuals, families, and communities. Those are, that's our vision positive impact on individuals, families, communities. And so like uh, when a coach is working one-on-one with someone, I'm like, what is, you know, what's the goal for the week? Like, what's your positive impact going to be? Why are you there and how are you going to be helpful? I like it. I like it. I think it makes sense in the space that you're in, you know, like, man, every having so many different islands out there, you know, I, I struggle at times with uh, getting everyone back together on the same plane of thinking. And I have a, an office where everybody lives every day, right? You know, so having it scattered to the winds, like you have it, um, that's tough, man. That's really tough. It's also like uh, really beautiful because I get to foster people in their own environment. So like, I don't have to like, um, I don't have to have an office for them. Like I really don't. And so it comes with its, uh, challenges. Yes. Mm -hmm. But it also comes with a lot of intrinsic moments where I get to help people be better, which like, not only is me helping one of my coaches be better. It's also at the end of the day, helping the individual that I'm serving be better. Um, and so like cultivating individuals, families like communities and so like mm-hmm. uh it comes back to that all the time for me and and um everything that we do here is very genuine and so like if i tell someone to say a certain thing like that's not genuine but if i coach them on a how to get to a certain thought like mm-hmm. then it's their own yeah absolutely motivational interviewing is a big piece of being a boss. Yeah. Huge, <laughs> huge. I think uh, bigger than people, most people realize we have the uh, blessing of being in an industry where that is a common um, tool 
that is used right mm-hmm. so it's around us all the time but imagine right. how successful it could be uh how much more successfully it could be implemented in other industries i coach all of my families on how to do it yeah, like when families like call me and they're having troubles i'm like why don't you ask them this question um yeah. and uh i mean it's such a powerful tool you're exactly right um what do you think about like when you're you know having challenges in the office space because i could see that becoming like to be perfectly honest with you like toxic very quickly um it has yeah it has uh, in the past right you know like what do you do to like at you know because everyone when something is like that like looks up to somebody and like when you're in behind the big desk like it's the most natural place to look like how do you kind of deal with that toxicity toxicity because like i'll tell you that i have like when it comes to my personal life like zero tolerance for it like mm-hmm. zero tolerance for toxicity um, me too. Me uh, too. how do you like deal with that like in your own office space you know i take the same approach that i take to my personal life when it comes to that zero tolerance policy which is looking inward first and uh showing people with my actions how I want them to interact with me and uh, I am very very direct and very very transparent with all of our staff and that's uh, intentional to the point of I want them to be very very direct and very transparent with me and I don't want information silos I don't need you to filter what you're saying. I need to hear it. And even if I don't like it, I'm going to give you the respect of not reacting to it. So that's the overall philosophy and how I enact that because, you know, we're dealing with people at different stages of personal growth. Not everyone has the confidence to be that direct. So I try to make safe spaces for them to do that and feel protected so every month i have like a basically a stay interview form that i send out and it's google form so it comes back to me completely anonymous and it's got some satisfaction scales on there for various pieces of their job and the company as a whole And then it's got some more broad open-ended questions where they have space to answer them. And then it's got a space for them to just give complete unfiltered feedback. Uh, And we review that at every scene. We do a, a monthly senior committee meeting. So we review that to see where we can improve as a management committee. Um, And I personally look at it as, you know, where can I make the company stronger? So that's, that's my approach. I, I like that. My, like, you know, as I think about the growth of my company and many companies, I always think about like the people that are a part of it. Like that's mm-hmm. my biggest thing. Like what, how are the people um, and like checking in on them is so important. And so like, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I have this thing where at the end of every form, like any type of form that somebody's filling out, like about client facing side of things, I ask them, how are you doing? Do you need any further support? And can I do anything to help you? Um, those are the last, 
three questions that they have to answer. And I'll tell you what happens that I really don't like is that people aren't honest in that form, um, mm. that people need assistance and they don't tell me and I don't find out until they're really struggling. Mm. And I have been faced with that several times with my like, you know, coaches in the field that, you know, they were having an issue and they didn't tell me about it. And then it becomes a crisis. And mm. so I think that that is nature of the beast with the people that are attracted to this lifestyle is that they want to be helping hands. and They don't like to ask for help. All um, of us, man. So how, us. how do you as a leader help them feel more confident in asking for help and reaching out? I, you know, what I have found that works best is that I just connect with them. Um, because if they don't feel connected, they're going to be less likely to talk about themselves. And yeah. so at the end of the day, I, anytime somebody is new with us, um, or, you know, they've been with us for a while, I call and check in on them. And I like do the traditional, like, how are you doing? What's the weather like there? You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, I then ask them questions about like what they did over the weekend. I get them to buy in and start talking about themselves a little bit more. And then yeah. I swoop in and ask them the question. Um, cool. and so I just have to get them talking long enough to feel comfortable coming to me with something that is difficult. Um, or if they won't come to me and like we, I can just sense it. It's part of that intuition that I think that you gain in, in leadership. And, uh, I'll just straight up ask them like, Hey, it seems like something's a little bit off. Do you want to, do you want to talk about it? Or are you struggling with anything? Um, yeah. And most of the time people do open up at that point from right. what I found, um, if you are the type of leader that is genuine and doesn't use it like as, uh, as a tool against them later, right. Which is super dangerous, super um, dangerous. But I did have, I did have one, uh, suggestion if you're open to it. Yeah. Always. Um, what about calling them and asking them for help on your cases? Um, so we do that. Uh, okay. we do a group call with all of our coaches okay. and it's like, we present a case topic, which is one of the random coaches in the calls, um, mm -hmm. cases. And they know that. And so they don't speak up about it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but we ask them like, Hey, what do you guys think about this? What would you have done? And so right, right, right. we get everyone talking about all of the cases and that way it is transparent. You use that term mm -hmm. earlier, which is one of my favorite things. And so, mm -hmm. Like, uh, the more transparent we become with everyone, the, you know, my hope is, is that they'll be more transparent with us. Yeah. And it will come. I mean, mm -hmm. so what I'm talking about more though, is like you one-on-one -on -one calling a new coach and just saying like, Hey, I'm running into this situation. Like I'm, I'm struggling, even if it's not necessarily true. Like I know that you could <laughs> probably figure it out, but just saying, Hey, like, you know, what would you do here? And letting yeah. them know. I like that because we do that in our training, you know, yeah. like I make people answer a bunch of questions like that. Um, mm. It's a big part of our onboarding is like exposing them to things. Um, mm. And I think that I do that in more of a group setting. I don't necessarily do it one-on-one. -on -one. I'll have to try that out. Um, yeah. just I found it really useful, man, for me with my clinicians and with our case managers and just, uh, <clears throat> like, when it comes to prioritizing myself or talking about things that I'm struggling with, 
you know, I will sit down with them one-on-one and in order to open up the conversation on their side, I kind of start with like, Hey, like I'm, I'm struggling with this right now. You know, like, do you think like, what, what do you think I should do about it? You know, I kind of like really, uh, that's helped me develop that rapport is like being a little bit vulnerable. Right. Right. Yeah. It's such a piece because I think it's like, uh, the relationship that you have with your parents when you're really young is that they're perfect and like they have no issues and that can happen in the office place too. You know, we can talk about like family stuff and it's like, they're the boss, they should be perfect. And, uh, you know, like, coming back to the yeah. crazy <laughs> it is it happens though it happens it does, like it does. Um, and like how do we uh get back onto the level and like lead them as peers instead of like somebody up on a pedestal we're just as like general human beings like listen there's a hierarchy to my business and that's intentional right, right. that's very much intentional right i am the boss everything falls on me and yeah. that means that like every mistake falls on me. I take yeah. responsibility for every single mistake, right? right? No, no matter what. Cause like whether I directly had something to do with it or not, it falls back on me. It reflects on me. It is my mistake. I own right. it. Yeah. Right. That's my job. My job yeah. is to own every mistake in this organization mm-hmm. and look for how we can improve them. Um, you know, so I lost my train of thought. Fuck. <laughs> That short-term memory man natural it's natural <laughs> it happens um but let's get back to well let's start i, I want to do one thing real quick so like yeah. we've been talking about our businesses a lot right can, can you explain to me what recovery frameworks is and what it does yeah we probably should have started with this we um, definitely should have yeah sure. <laughs> uh so Recovery Frameworks is an organization that provides one-on-one peer recovery coaching, companionship, and interventions. We serve individuals and families that are struggling with substance use disorder, eating disorders, and different mental health disorders. Mm-hmm. We do that by providing a peer that is in long-term recovery or has a clinical background to do motivational interviewing, to motivate, to be a cheerleader, and to be a compatriot on somebody's recovery path. Um, We like the idea of one-on-one coaching because this means that individuals can recover in their house. They can recover in their office place. They do not have to put their life on pause, but what they can do is begin to learn these healthy coping skills while um, living their life, which, you know, that's such a big piece of recovery to me is is continuing to live and to open up our lives and to um, have someone to lead you from the front um, and to walk with you and to hold your hand during those difficult moments. Absolutely. Love elevator it. pitch. Great elevator pitch, yeah, dude. That's me. Um, so I will say that Recovery Frameworks does a great job at that. We work with y'all a lot because mm-hmm. of that. Um, and it really aligns with a lot of the core values and principles that um, my business, uh, Lantana Recovery, adheres to. So Lantana Recovery is a treatment center for individuals with substance use disorders. We're located in Charleston, South Carolina, and our approach to treatment is intentionally different than the norm. Um, We have an empowerment model of treating individuals with substance use disorders. And what that means is that we are not sticking them somewhere in the woods for 28 days and um, 
cleaning them up and making them feel really good and then sending them back out into the world with no resources. So we're located right in downtown Charleston and we believe in working with the individual while life is still going on, while they are still experiencing the stressors of life and they can come back and process those things with us. So our format is really heavy process. We have clinicians that specialize in trauma and our curriculum is designed to specifically work well with a high uh, comorbidity of trauma uh, and substance use disorder. So it's a great elevator pitch as well. Thanks for that. Um, it changes will, every time it does. Right. Um, <laughs> it does. it's so funny. Like I, you know, I studied entrepreneurship in college and like we had to do elevator pitches all the time and they would, they would scale us on the written elevator pitch that we submitted versus the verbal one that we gave. And so it was like, how close were you in line with everything that you were supposed to talk about? And so it's so funny because like, uh, you know, I think that a big part of like leadership and ownership of an agency is like really knowing, like really knowing what we do here. And uh, absolutely, I think that that's why it changes because like every week, like we're doing something different, like every day right. we're doing something different. And it's a, uh, it's just a big piece of like, of, uh, of being an owner of a company. I think having the, having the pulse at all times, right. You know, like if I don't have that, I'm lost. And then if I'm lost, the organization is lost. You right. Know? Um, how easy is it for us to veer off course? Like I was saying, like you can do that in a positive way with geometry. If you just go one degree the wrong way, like in two years, you're going to like be in some, some murky area, but um, you know, if you do it in the negative way too, you're good, you know, um, mm. we can, we can get ourselves into trouble. Absolutely. So like, how do you, what is one of the main things that keeps you on course from a philosophy standpoint as a business owner and therefore keeps your business on course? Ooh, philosophy. I don't know. I couldn't talk to you about philosophy. I can talk to you about what I do. Um, I, uh, I have a ton of checks and balances in my life and in my business. Um, so I guess checks and balances is the philosophy of this, but okay. One of the things that I did um, three months back is that I blocked off my schedule um, from three to five every day to chat with my business partner. So three to five. I remember we, you telling me about that. Yeah. We leave the office. Um, we'll like either go for a walk or we will like kind of put the computers down. We will talk about the big picture things of what we're doing. Um, mm -hmm. And it's so funny because then at the end of it, we like write down our notes about like, what are the outcomes that we want to see from this? And uh it's led to a, a ton of growth in our organization in a very quick way. Um, yeah. So yeah. what does it mean for us to just like sit down and continue to innovate instead of getting bogged down in the day-to-day? -day? Because I think that that's one of the biggest challenges of like small business ownership is starting out as getting bogged down in the day-to-day -day that you forget to grow. So it's so hard. Uh, yeah. There's a book that I just read and I think I told you about it's uh, E-Myth. E and yep. that's a lot about of, of what it's about. It's creating systems so that you can work on your business and not in it. Right. Um, 
which is really cool. I got to pause for a second because they're doing a group right outside and okay. my stuff is in the conference room. I got to grab this up. Yeah. Yeah. back um we have saturday services going on right now and i have an awesome new per diem clinician who uh likes to use our upstairs conference room so perfect she, she's great so i let her i let her work wherever she wants <laughs> there you go yeah man um so back to that like overall philosophy piece you know one thing that i think is interesting about our industry is how territorial it gets like needlessly territorial in my opinion because we get what seven percent of the people i forget what the actual statistic is but we get about seven percent of the people who need help help every year Right. Is that accurate? You would know, you would know better than me. Uh, so so like I think that. that's like the general statistic that they give is like, you, you know, one tenth. So 10% of the uh, general population has uh, some sort of substance use disorder. Yes. And then we get about 7% of that 10% into treatment. We get the, those people help. And okay. there uh, is this overall attitude that I find um, and it's kind of pervasive throughout the industry of it being, you know, very territorial and people, you know, um, viewing others as competition. And I made that mistake early on and, you know, I, luckily have learned from it and at every period of growth for me it was when i stopped looking at others as competition and started looking at them as partners and really mm. like fostering that collaboration and setting aside my fear and putting that in god's hands and saying like hey these people are trying to help people we don't help anywhere near all the people that we need to help no matter what. So why wouldn't I try to help this person succeed? Right. It's, you know, you nailed the language that we use in our organization too. It's partners. Um, Cause I spent a lot of, a lot of time when I was in the discovery phase of my business about like, who are my competitors, you know, mm -hmm. who are my competitors, which I think is natural. And so you're going to find that in every textbook. Like what is the competitive landscape? Um, yes. But when you're in the industry of helping people, 
um, like that at the end of the day is what we do. Uh, yeah. We cannot close doors. Um, nope. We don't help people that way. Um, and I think that you see that. I think that you see that, you know, when these um, treatment centers get purchased by these conglomerates that own a bunch of treatment centers, that it becomes more of a business than it becomes in the industry of helping people. And that's when those doors get closed. That's when the territories uh, get walls put around them. It's not the little guys that are putting those walls up. Like it is the big players. Um, And uh, the ones who come in contact with the most amount of people are the ones who are closing more doors. It is. And, you know, I also have to be careful and check myself there too. Cause like, I can't start to view like, big organizations as the problem because guess what they also help a shitload of people a shitload of people and like they're like you know providing access to care you right. know so uh, i have to be very cognizant and careful about that line of thinking where i don't get too deep into like oh it's these it's the private equity groups that are the problem it's the no no, that's not it. Like, you know, I have to, again, just, just look inward, just focus there and control what I can control, which is right. what and, we do. And I think that the thing is, is that that stuff figures itself out too. Like I've seen organizations go through changes like that and the walls begin to come up and then somebody comes in there and says like, you know what, like we got to get back more in touch with our community. Um, mm-hmm. And I've mm-hmm. seen that recently and i've seen that over the years um just about like what it means for them to kind of continue to innovate and to continue to connect um, they're figuring it out too and like yeah. at the at the head of that organization there's, there's a person right who's dealing with a lot i'm a sure lot. and you, you know, know it's yeah for sure um and i you know one of the things when i started my business and decided to move my headquarters uh that a lot of people told me was tread lightly Atlanta, right? Tread lightly in yeah. Atlanta. Like you've yeah. got some people that like are going to try to ruin you is what they said. And I was like, that can't be true. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. it can't be true. Um, it can't be true. And at the end of the day, like it's kind of true. Um, it's kind of true. It happens a lot. True. It happens yeah. a lot. And like at the end of the day, like all I want to do is help people. And if other mm-hmm. like organizations don't want to like be a part of that, then um, you know, I create partnerships with organizations that do. Mm, yeah. And it's, uh, it all always works out, man. It's pretty wild. Like, you know, as soon as I give up that fear and no matter who out there is, you know, talking shit about me or what we do, if I'm consistent with like what we believe in, then it all works out. It all works out. Right. Right. And if the, at the end of the day, all I'm trying to do is help people, then like, I'm going to be put in an, in an opportunity Same to help way. people. So so. If I put, if I put the, the clients above everything, right. Like, so we have a ranking system within our executive leadership team, which is clients, staff, profit, clients, staff, profit. And if you want to invest in our company, you have to buy into that. Triple bottom line, man. You read about that? <laughs> I did not actually read about that. So can you tell me about it? Triple bottom line is the idea that uh, the next wave of business post-capitalism is going to be three things. Um, that instead of businesses just thinking about profit, that they're going to have to think about the three Ps. 
people, planet, profit. So every organization in order to thrive is going to have to benefit the earth. They're going to have to benefit people and they're going to have to make money. Um, mm-hmm. But that not one of those is more important than the other. And so I love that. I love yeah, that. It's super important. And like, yeah. I, I think that, you know, I spent much of my time in college, like focusing on sustainability sustainable entrepreneurship, like not only like sustainable materials, like we talk about like reusing a water bottle, like we're both doing today, like, but like, what does it mean for sustainable practices to go into place? Mm -hmm. And so if I'm not benefiting people at the end of the day, if I'm not cultivating my staff, like what you're talking about there, like staff, you know, clients, like if I'm not cultivating my staff, I'm not going to keep staff. If I don't keep staff, my business cannot thrive. Um, That's right. That's right. And especially in what we're doing, man, like, you know, I think, I think a lot of times uh, the staff taking a backseat to maybe it's like, you know, a lot of times it's uh, clients, profit staff, like maybe in that ranking, but even like that, like, you know, it might be further back, dude. I don't know. But uh, it's so, 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 so dangerous because like, it affects like just from like the pure capitalist perspective, right? It affects my ability to treat our organization's ability to treat. And then it, that eventually hits that profit margin. It hits that bottom line. It like the best marketing I have is the outcomes, the people who went through my program and succeeded. That is more valuable. I could, I could spend a million dollars and not get the same value, uh, as I can in investing that money in good treatment. I'll tell you, man, like when I was in treatment, they told me that the biggest referral source that they had was alumni. And I was like, that's bullshit. Um, but like, man, I can't tell you how many, I can't tell you how many people like that I've told where I went to treatment, like constantly when I speak professionally about like going to treatment, everyone always asks me, where did, where did you go? Like, where did you go? Always do. They always do. Where did you go to treatment? Where did you go to treatment? And like, it's like college, bro. The treatment industry, it's like, no, where are you an alumni? Where did (laughs) you go? Did you, uh, on a side note, one of my favorite clothing stores in Charleston, South Carolina is Jordan Lash. I'm going to plug them hard. That's where the shirt comes from. They have a t-shirt right now that just has Betty Ford on it. <laughs> nice. And I was like, nice, I was like, oh my God, need to buy uh, this. Uh, I love that. Several I'm going fam- down. Yeah. Several family members who went there. <laughs> um, so nice. yeah, yeah super yeah. funny. Uh, I love that. I love that. It actually brings up another part, like a segue into the same, back to the same topic we were talking about earlier, which is like uh private equity, you know, a lot of times people are like, oh, private equity is a problem. And then uh, you have that other school of thought, maybe in the same person where it's like, oh, no, it's these big nonprofits that are the problem. What's your uh, what's your thought there? Um, I mean, man, you know, my background, like I come from higher education. I, do, yeah. I like come from like my first job out of college was working for a nonprofit. Um, and uh I can remember one of the first experiences that I had at looking at nonprofits negatively um, was, I don't know if you remember this, but this is like the era of flip phones. Um, it was when the Haiti crisis happened and they had their earthquake and the Red Cross started that text message campaign that said, text this number and we will charge your phone bill $10 and it will donate to Haiti. Right. Okay. Um, one of the biggest 
fundraising campaigns in like this world's history. And at the end of the day, only 12% of it went to victims of the Haiti crisis. Um, it's pretty dark, pretty dark. And those, I might be a little bit wrong on those statistics. I don't want to like seem like I'm the uh, expert on this, but it was very low, very low. Um, right. Right. And I remember thinking like, how does a nonprofit get away with something like that? And I was a punk kid and I like wanted to, you know, formulate my own opinions. And that's like a big part of like who I was growing up. And like, I started researching nonprofits and I found out that nonprofits only have to spend 20% of their income on outcomes. Um, So 80% of their income can be on overhead. So that means that like 79% of it can be on executive pay. Um, which like, there are some big nonprofits out there where executives get paid a lot of money. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you have a membership to, oh God, it's pinned on my browser. What's it called? Um, where you can pull the tax filings for nonprofits. Um, yes, yes, you do. I do too. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm very selective on which nonprofits that I will support. Um, yes, I will say guide, there's guide star, guide yeah, star, guide star. Yes. Um, yes. you have to be on guide star in order to, um, receive donations at a national level. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I've worked with guide star. I've got nonprofits signed up with guide star. Um, I'm no mm-hmm. very familiar, but it, uh, you know, there are some nonprofit treatment centers out there too. Um, yeah. And that's what, you know, mainly is in the forefront of my mind just because of what I do. Right. And I'm immersed in it every day and it's hard to pull myself out of that uh, train of thinking. So, um, you know, I do, man, every nonprofit that I work with on, you know, in like a business relationship sense of mutual referrals and et cetera, I pull their tax filings from GuideStar every year. And I see what the CEO makes and where they spend their money. And um, yeah, man, it's, it's wild. Right. But then I have to like, again, pull myself out of that, that way of thinking and like, go back to, they do, they do do a lot of good. They do a lot of good too, man. You yeah. Know? Yeah, like, for sure. It's hard that dichotomy of like, uh, you know, always just looking for the positive in all, in all places. Eternal optimist, man. Eternal optimist. Yeah. There's always a silver lining. Yeah. Maybe that's what we should call our podcast. The eternal optimist. The eternal optimist. Yeah. A deep Uh, dive into the treatment industry. Yeah. Um, I'm into it, man. Well, we're at the two hour mark, dude. Wow. I flew by. No one is going to listen to this. Um, (laughs) That's okay. Yeah, for sure. I think it's like uh, something that will like grow as time. Like, I don't like, do you listen to a lot of podcasts now? I do. Yeah, Yeah. I do. I mean, like my favorite podcast is Joe Rogan. You know, I've been a Rogan fan for the last four or five years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm big on stand-up comedian podcasts. Like I think it's hilarious. And if you go back and listen to the first ones, they're all Mm -hmm. atrocious. Um, Yeah, they're bad. They're all atrocious. And so like- You listen to some of Rogan's first and they're- I'm going to always honor and respect your opinions, Dom, but I literally cannot stand that man. Um, Yeah. What is it? Tell me. (laughs) Tell me. uh, I think that we've had this conversation, but like- I'm sure we have. 
present himself as an authority by inviting these people in. Yes, I understand that he gets them to talk about their issues, but the way that he guides them and leads them down rabbit holes um, to support his own narratives is what I really don't like. Mm. Um, I have never gotten that perspective. I will respect your perspective on it. And I will just say, I might send you a few to listen to. And, you know. I've tried. I listened to the Tarantino yeah. one. You know, I really enjoyed yeah. the Tarantino uh, interview. Um, yeah. It's when he like gets into the political landscape where I'm like, mm. stay in your lane, you know, like, like that's my thing yeah. with it. Yeah. And I think that his meteoric rise to fame on the podcast into the spectrum happened at a very polarizing time in our country too. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that he was a part of that. Like I really do yeah okay all right i could see that i mean what do you think like if you had to take a guess as to his political perspective what would it be Uh, i think that he's small government um i think that like he is you know i mean he moved from la to austin so like he's got this mentality of like get out of my house, you know, like, because that's a big, yeah, there's uh, definitely, thing for, yeah, there's some of that for, for sure. Californians. Um, so yeah. like, I would assume that he's libertarian at the end of the day. Yeah. That's not, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty accurate. I mean, he, he's uh de- he's a registered Democrat, but there's definitely some libertarian leanings in there yeah. for sure. I see what I, what I like about him most is almost the antithesis to what you said, which is that he like brings in, so many different perspectives on it and listens and it feels like genuine the way he uh listens and is open to being wrong right i think that's like my my favorite part about him is that he will change his perspective on something well i think like one of my big things with it is is like he is the biggest yeah it's the biggest podcast in the world um And like, it comes back to that philosophy of like, to whom much is given, much is expected. And so if he is going to control the way that his platform is shared, because like we do live in these fast news cycles and like his stuff gets cut, you know, he gets things that are cut and copied and pasted across the internet. And like, he needs to do a better job of like maintaining that narrative Um, because like people use his language for their own narratives. And that's what... Mm -hmm you know um i think fair enough yeah, yeah i see that yeah i do i see that i think when it's taken out of context like i've never listened to just a snippet i've right. always listened to but what gets the whole shared. thing so what like gets when, shared yeah, yeah yeah what's what's so out there what's the perspective it's yeah. like whenever i speak on a recorded line or i do anything for television i tell them that i get last edit rights on every form that they are going to share of me Um, and if they don't, uh, I make them like whoever the producer is like sign a piece of paper that says like, if they don't give me last edit rights, then, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to come after compensatory damages, uh, because I have like been filmed on the news when I was a student and like they cut and like did everything that they could to chop up this story that I was telling. And it wasn't my story at the end of the day. Like it was their story. Um, Yeah. I experienced the same thing. You know, I was at like a, a Narcan training and they took like, uh, very very brief snippet and put it in the place that they wanted to put it yeah it made me sound like a fucking moron (laughs) right um i had one one time where they put a bunch of like pills and needles in a transparent image over top of the story that i was telling wow um and it's like hey you guys like one i've never used a needle like two Mm. like 
I was just talking to you about language and stigma. Like you can't, uh, you can't yeah. use these images on a story like mine. Like my yeah. story is of, of a person in recovery. My story is not of like living in addiction. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's fucking ridiculous. So I learned that lesson. I learned that lesson. Um, yeah. Any yeah. written story about me, if I do any interview, it's, I get the last that it writes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you don't yeah. want to agree with that, you don't get to share it. Uh, I like that. I think that's yeah. smart. I'm going to start adopting that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think we will have many great spirited debates in the future. Yes. Isaac. Like, I like it. that we don't agree on everything. Yeah. That's one it's of my favorite things important. about you. <laughs> it's super yeah. important. Uh, yeah. I, I don't need I. a bunch of people to co-sign all of my thoughts. No, <laughs> man. The, the, what terrifies me the most about being in a position of authority is just having a ton of sycophants around me. I don't ever want that. And I do everything I can to try to protect myself from that. So Right. Um, you know, growing up, my dad was an entrepreneur. He like started a staffing agency, which yeah, a very successful one too. Yeah. My dad did very well for himself. And he had this guy, um, that was his right hand man, like Mm -hmm. made like no decision got made in that organization without his approval. And he talks about him very fondly. Um, but I also remember being a kid and him screaming on the phone with him. Um, mm. like they did not agree on everything. Uh, they didn't agree on advertising. They didn't agree on staff selections. They didn't agree on like big picture, like visions of where they were going. But at the end of the day, like that guy, like that guy still had like a, like a veto power. Um, mm. and I think that's super important. That's part of the checks and balances that I was talking about earlier. Like yes. that's why I'm in a partnership because like, if I made all of the decisions, like, um, this isn't going to, this isn't going to go well. Yeah, man. That echo chamber is a, a recipe for disaster. I do not need yes, man. No, like, I don't no. Nope. Um, so cool. Well, let's wrap this. Um, yeah, man, I thought this was, uh, an awesome first attempt at this and it will evolve and it I'm, will. I'm excited for it. So yeah, for sure. 